Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the New York Historical Society. I'm Louise Mirror, New York Historical's president and CEO. And it's a great thrill for me to see practically all of the seats filled in our beautiful Robert H. Smith Auditorium, despite the difficult, challenging weather, or puddles, I should say. Tonight's program, America's Bank, the Epic Struggle to Create the Federal Reserve, is a part of our Byron Wien Lecture Series on Financial History. I'd like to thank Mr. Wien for his great guidance. There he is. I can thank him in person. Thank you, Byron, for it. Byron is a long-standing New York historical trustee. He even predates me at the Historical Society. And we honored him a few years back, and uh, we wanted him to remember how, how valued he was as honoree and as trustee. So we created this series in his honor, which he has agreed to moderate. Thank you. Again. I'd also like to thank uh, and recognize several trustees here with us this evening, our wonderful chair, Pam Schaffler. Thank you, Pam, for your leadership. And also trustees Lon Jacobs and Ira Unschuld. As, uh, as I've been extremely fortunate to be able to do on several occasions over the past couple of years, I uh, want to recognize tonight great historian and friend of the New York Historical Society in the audience with us, Ron Chernow. Thank you, Ron. Tonight's program will last about an hour, and it will include an answer, a question and answer session. There will be a formal book signing following the program, and copies of our speakers' books are available in our museum store, which is to the left of me. We are thrilled to welcome Roger Lowenstein to the New York Historical Society. Mr. Lowenstein is one of the best known and most esteemed financial writers in America. An acclaimed journalist, he got his start as a financial reporter and later as a columnist with the Wall Street Journal. He's written frequently for Fortune, The New York Times, and Bloomberg. He's the author of several books, including the New York Times bestseller, Buff Buffett, and his most recent, America's Bank, The Epic Struggle to Create the Federal Reserve. We're delighted to welcome back our moderator, as I said, our wonderful trustee, Byron Wien. Mr. Wien is vice chairman of Blackstone Advisory Partners, LP, where he acts as senior advisor to both the firm and its clients in analyzing economic, social, and political trends. Prior to joining Blackstone, he was chief investment strategist for Pequot Capital and chief US investment strategist at Morgan Stanley for 21 years. In 2006, Mr. Wien was named one of the 16 most influential people on Wall Street by New York Magazine. And in 2008, he was presented with a Lifetime Achievement Award by the New York Society of Security Analysts. As always, I'd last ask you to please make sure that anything that makes a noise like a cell phone is switched off. And now, please join me in welcoming this evening's guest. Thank you. So, Roger, <clears throat> you're sitting around trying to figure out what to do with the rest of your life, and um, you decide to write a book on the Federal Reserve. 
Tell us the thinking that went into that. You're going to devote. <laughs> who, who said there was any thinking? <laughs> You're going to devote three years at least of your life to this project, and um, and part of it is going to be interesting. I, I think you probably didn't realize at the time, or couldn't have realized at the time, the dynamics of the people involved and how interesting they would be as personalities. But how did you decide to write this book? Well, um, by the way, thank you to Louise and the Historical Society, and to you, Byron. Um, you really nailed it, Byron, that it, it, there is sort of a process of sitting around thinking about what, what you're going to do with the rest of your life or what you're going to do with the next few years. I knew I wanted to write a history um, and uh, had said that um, many times to my editor and kept getting sidetracked by current financial crises that, that pulled me into them. Um, I thought that the Federal Reserve... Um, coming out of the last crisis of 2008, it's so present in our lives, and at least people who follow economic news and financial news, that I was interested in what the country was like beforehand. How do we handle crises without it? Why did people think we needed one? And when I looked a little bit at the period, it seemed to speak out uh, so much to the present. Uh, it was a time of uh, very rapid change, uh, the progressive era, big mergers, fortunes were being made. Uh, ordinary Americans felt that um, things were moving rather a bit too fast, um, and these big fortunes were leaving them behind. Uh, there were um, very big disagreements about um, whether um, we needed more government to get involved uh, and uh, supervise and organize the financial system, or whether we had too much uh, government uh, as it was. And to top it off, there was tremendous suspicion of uh, one industry in particular, and that was the banking industry. So. Um, there were times when I was beginning, and even more so as I got into it, when I felt I wasn't running about 100 years ago, but, but uh, actually today. Okay. <clears throat> if, look, the, the Federal Reserve would never have been founded, in my judgment, if it weren't for the panic of 07. I mean, the, the disarray that was caused by that, the role of a relatively few people, including uh, J.P. Morgan, particularly J.P. Morgan, um, played a major role. So describe what happened in the Panic of 07 and what the, the aftermath of that was and how that coagulated to form uh, the desire to have a central bank. Because the, the feeling, I mean, we had had central banks in the United States before that, and, and they had all uh, uh, been closed down. I mean, and that goes back to the origins of the country to Hamilton and Jackson. Yes, we'd had uh, central banks in those two periods. There were just, uh, for ideological reasons, people uh, devoutly opposed, uh, almost the same way you made this uh, in conversation beforehand, that people today are opposed to the Affordable Care Act. Perhaps uh, people will be sitting on a stage 30 years ago from now saying, oh, we used to have uh, uh, government health care, and uh, you know, they did mm -hmm. away with that. Maybe sometime in the future we'll have it again. Um, hopefully not. But um, by the uh, first decade of the 20th century, uh, we'd gone 70 years without um, a central uh, bank. And so uh, since there was no uh, central reserve, uh, each bank kept its own reserve. So in a rainy and day... issued its own script. It issued its own currency um, backed by uh, the Treasury by that point. But its reserves, its rainy day money, uh, was in the vault or deposited by it and some other bank. But there was no central institution that it could turn to in a pinch and borrow more. There was no institution that might say, gee, things are getting a little tight. We're going to lower the interest rate. We're going to start flooding mm -hmm. Wall Street and the society with money. Uh, and periodically, we had um, money shortages. And, and what would happen 
would be that when each individual bank saw that conditions were tight, they would act for very logical self-protective reasons and call on their loans. And of course, that would exacerbate the problem and there'd be this self-fulfilling cycle. So in 1907, we had sort of the whopper of these. Um, uh, there were bank runs and you know, we talked about, uh, newspaper journalists used the term bank run in 2008, but in our day, they mean um, a red line on a screen, you know, a bad day on Wall Street. But in 1907, there were actual bank runs. People ran down the street. Some of them were seen uh, carrying satchels and briefcases, hoping mm. to, 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 to get, get to the money. teller in time. Um, banks, uh, one after another, shut down. Um, for, it started in New York. Uh, pretty soon, banks in other cities began to uh, tighten up. They were it was then, always, there was always a, a little discombobulation because the banks in the Midwest needed money uh, during before the harvest and... And then they got the harvest took place, and they got money, and they paid the New York so, banks back. Since there was no reserve uh, bank, uh, central bank, banks in the Midwest would often keep their deposits in New York. Yeah. When they saw that there were runs on the New York banks, they pulled their deposits out, which, of course, really exacerbated the run. But it didn't save them. They then had runs in their own cities, in their own banks, uh, out in the Midwest and the West. And uh, by a month into the panic, uh, banks were either closed or they were issuing their own script, uh, monopoly money, mm -hmm. uh, which might circulate in town to town. But if you say, if you did business in New York and you had a debt in Philadelphia, you couldn't cancel it because uh, we'd, we'd come to this very balkanized system of, of made up uh, IOU money. And it was quite a panic. So the Knickerbocker fails. How important was that? Well, the Knickerbocker was a bank on 34th Street uh, uh, designed by uh, Sanford White. Uh, that was one of the archetypal bank runs where, where um, uh, J.P. Morgan sent, uh, J.P. Morgan was the most eminent financier in New York uh, uh, at your old firm, uh, Morgan and Company. Uh, he sent a couple of his lieutenants to the Knickerbocker. Uh, since there was no Ben Bernanke, uh, J.P. Morgan decided to play Ben Bernanke and decide, is this a bank worth saving? If so, uh, I'll organize a loan. And he sent a guy named Ben Strong, um, a young, very talented banker, uh, to go over the books. Uh, there wasn't much time. Uh, people were clamoring for their money. Stacks of cash are, are you know, visible at the teller's windows. Uh, people are getting desperate. And uh, Strong reports back to uh, J.P. Morgan that there really wasn't time uh, uh, to assess uh, the bank, but it didn't look very good, and they let it fail. Mm -hmm. And um, at that point, um, Morgan knew, and uh, every banker in the city knew, that the runs would then spread uh, really to every bank in the city, potentially. Well, the exciting thing about the book is not institutions, it's people. So talk, tell, tell us about Warburg, how he came to the United States from Europe, how he was astonished at the primitive nature of the American banking system, and how, and how his influence pervaded the thinking of the other major players on the scene. Well, I'm glad you started with Warburg because the, the story really does start with him. He was um, one of five sons of a, an already a very accomplished German banking family in Hamburg. Um, he was the most schooled internationally, one who had um, the broadest conception and understanding of international finance. Uh, at a very young age, he was tapped to run um, the family bank in Hamburg and uh, probably would have had uh, a very productive and successful life in, in Hamburg, um, at least until the 1930s, because he was Jewish. But um, in the 1890s, he met Nina Loeb, 
the daughter of the Kuhnlobe uh, banking family uh, here in New York. Jacob Schiff's sister. Right? Yes, yes. Um, they were actually connected via two different ways. Yeah, right, um, two different ways. Uh, you almost need a, a diagram to, yeah. to figure it out. But, but Jacob Schiff was uh, Warburg's uh, brother-in-law. Anyway, she um, wanted to uh, settle in New York. He wanted to remain... Um, uh, in Germany, uh, after some compromises, it were they decided to move to New York, and um, <laughs> he he, um, he was only here, as he um, would later recount, three weeks when there was one of these money panics. So this is the yeah. way before the panic of um, 1907, and um, interest rates actually shot up in New York in the New York money market uh, to 100 percent, and Warburg, who was very refined was quite appalled that um, this seemed to be something he might have expected out of the Wild West in the 1880s, but not in the Gilded Age New York of, of the early 1900s. And um, as he later said in his memoirs, he, he wasn't here but three weeks when he began to, to study the roots of the evil. And he decided that the roots of the evil were the lack of a central bank in, in the United States. And by this time, there was a central bank in Germany, of course. There was one in France and England, and in just about all of the, the countries with developed economies. So. Um, he told Schiff, uh, actually, that he'd written, he'd taken it upon himself to write a paper uh, outlining uh, why America should have a central bank as they had in Germany. And um, they lived in the east side. They used to walk down uh, to Wall Street together. And in one of these walks, uh, Schiff said he'd read uh, the paper. Uh, he didn't disagree with it, but um, he thought that Warburg really didn't understand the psychology of uh, the American people, that we were a very independent, uh, rough and ready you know, pioneering that whole ethos um, that, that we still have uh, today. Uh, we tried a central bank. Uh, people didn't like it then. They wouldn't want a big government uh, agency and so on. But um, just as a, a teaching exercise, he offered to show Warburg's paper to James Stillman, who was the uh, head of the Citibank of New York, the biggest bank uh, in the country and, and the predecessor of today's uh, Citigroup. So um, a few days later, uh, Warburg is uh, sitting at his desk and um, uh, in walks, uh, over walks, uh, James Stillman, who is a man of uh, quite legendary laconicism. And um, uh, all Stillman says is uh, to Warburg with a slightly mocking tone, how is the great international financier? And Warburg immediately recognizes him, but before he can answer, uh, Stillman adds, don't you think the Citibank has done rather well, Warburg? And, um, Warburg, realizing that he's in the presence of the great man, says that it has very well indeed. And Stillman says, um, now not quite so friendly, um, why not leave well enough alone? And uh, Warburg gathers his uh, courage and says, Mr. Stillman, uh, when the next panic comes, you'll wish your responsibilities were smaller. Uh, Stillman goes off in a huff. and um, uh, he, he made the Bernie Sanders argument. He made the Bernie Sanders argument. Um, exactly. Yeah, what's happening? Okay. Someone has their cell phone on, on stage. It's, it's yeah, not me, I, but I, I turned mine on. off. I did too, but you want to take mine just in case? Just, just you know, I don't want to be the culprit next time, so it should be off. It's, it should be off, yeah, yeah. Why don't you just, I just, just, tell just you. take them both? Take them. And then, you know. Keep them. Is the, the big advantage in 1907 was there were no cell phone disturbances. You know? none, yeah. none at all. It just yeah. didn't happen. Uh, so there's a coda to that story. Um, Stillman goes off in a huff. And four years later, when um, the panic that we, that we described in 1907 
uh, is in full rage. And in fact, when J.P. Morgan is trying to organize a private bank bailouts, a various bank, and of course the first bank he calls on is the Citibank, the biggest bank, the one with, with all the resources. Uh, so Stillman is really in the thick of it. Um, there's panic in the streets, and uh, Warburg looks up one day at his desk, and there is a self-same Stillman approaching him again. Uh, still a man, a few words. Uh, he barks out, Warburg, where's your paper? <laughs> and, now, now, now Warburg realizes that, that now he has something of the upper hand and shakes his head sadly and says, um, too late, Mr. Stillman. What has to be done cannot be done in a hurry. It will take years of study, education, and research. So that's what started. That's really what started the bull roll. Yeah. And, uh, and there were years of study. And then other people got involved. Tell us about some of the other people who got involved, uh, ending up with uh, bringing down uh, this group of people to Jekyll Island yeah. well, to the, work out the plan. Warburg, by this point, um, 1907, had been in the country about four years. He'd really become quite an astute. He's a man in his 40s at this point. Yes, yes. He was born in uh, 1868, so he just turned, uh, he was turning 40 in, in 1908. Um, he be, had become quite an astute observer of the political system as well, and he realized that that comment about it can't be done in a hurry, he knew that the Congress, uh, not only was the American public not ready, but the Congress uh, wasn't ready. And in particular, he knew he needed the support of one man, not the president. The president was Teddy Roosevelt, who had um, no understanding of the financial system and probably even less interest in the financial system. Um, it, it wasn't, and it was interesting going on, was planning a big hunting expedition he in a big, Africa. He was planning a big hunting expedition. Um, you know, talk to him about setting up the game park, the national parks. Yeah. That was Teddy's thing, but, but not the Federal Reserve. The man was uh, Nelson Aldrich, mm -hmm. who was the chairman of the Senate Finance Committee. Uh, he was really the archetypal Gilded Age senator, uh, represented uh, Rhode Island. It was a Republican. Uh, the Republicans had been the dominant party essentially since the Civil War uh, uh, itself. And um, Aldrich was very close to the manufacturing interests in his state, um, made no bones about investing with um, various of the manufacturers that he also represented, uh, became very wealthy doing that, uh, was opposed to reform of just about anything, including the financial system, uh, which he really controlled by virtue of his uh, chairmanship. But um, the panic of 1907 unnerved him, and um, he recognized that uh, something wasn't operating uh, uh, correctly. Um, and had become at least curious enough to make some inquiries on uh, Wall Street. Um, Warburg knew well about Aldrich and recognized that nothing would change without Aldrich, and in the um, more modest efforts at changing the system he'd made, felt that uh, Aldrich was really to blame and really resented uh, Aldrich for being an impediment. But um, in the, at the end of uh, 07, after the panic, Aldrich made these inquiries on Wall Street uh, about what had uh, gone wrong Perhaps there was some little fix that they could uh, tinker with in the system. His inquiries led him to the office of Kuhn Loeb and to Jacob Schiff. And Schiff immediately said, you know, I, you're talking with the wrong guy. There's someone down the hall who, who's all over this stuff, and um, led him to uh, Warburg. Um, so now, finally, after all these years, uh, as a, an adopted uh, American, Warburg is standing face to face with the seat of American power. Um, Aldrich just has a very modest question to ask about um, uh, something about treasury bills uh, relatively in the U.S. and Germany. 
But uh, Warburg, uh, now that he's face-to-face -face with Aldrich, can't resist beginning to spin the gospel of central banking. Um, Aldrich, uh, perhaps to get out of there, uh, suggests that uh, Warburg might want to send him material uh, about uh, central banking and uh, takes his leave. Uh, Schiff, um, ever the cautious uh, brother-in-law, advises Warburg that it would be a grave mistake to write to uh, such a person as um, Senator Aldrich. And so the next day, uh, Warburg sends Aldrich what he calls a plan for a modified central bank. And three days later, he sends him yet uh, more modifications. And um, now that the volcano is uncapped, this stream of um, suggestions and bills and so forth, plans, uh, he sends to Aldrich. Um, Aldrich never writes back. But um, he's obviously um, intrigued, because the next year he leads um, a study commission to uh, Europe. And I really want to stop on that point for a second, because if you think about congressional delegations to Europe now, uh, they jet over. Uh, they have some you know, very tight uh, stage schedule. Um, they, they take a few pictures. 18 hours later, probably they're back on a plane, and that's it. But uh, Aldridge and this delegation went for a couple of months. Uh, they went to London, they went to Paris, they went to Berlin, the, the principal financial centers of Europe. Um, and he spoke with something like 58 uh, bankers, statesmen, some financial journalists. The, the, uh, the transcripts of these meetings still exist, so I was able to, to read them. And in, in every one of these meetings, Aldrich asked one form or another the same question, which was, when you get a financial panic like we just had, uh, how do you deal with it? And in, in every uh, situation, he got a version of the same answer. And that answer was, we don't have those kind of panics, because we have a central bank. If banks here run into trouble, uh, they start borrowing. The central bank starts lending, and the situation is ameliorated. And so um, Aldrich comes back a convert. Um, and there's a, um, a session of his uh, congressional committee in New York talking about reform uh, uh, that fall. Uh, Warburg, by now, is um, uh, so cognizant of the political difficulties in America that he, he speaks at this session, and he suggests very piecemeal, gradual uh, improvement. He doesn't think that, that the American body politic will stomach uh, anything more draconian. At the end of the session, uh, Aldrich goes up to Warburg and says, um, uh, Mr. Warburg, uh, I like your ideas. I find only one fault with them. Uh, Warburg naturally asks about the fault. And um, Aldrich says, you say we cannot have a central bank. Uh, I say we can. So uh, Warburg, Warburg at this point is absolutely stunned because he's been trying to uh, lobby people, interest Americans, and so on. And suddenly he finds the tables have turned that he's the cautious one. And the senator who he's held, he's accused of blocking the way, is now um, proposing to lead the charge. But, but um, actually, Warburg, again, is uh, perhaps is a more acute observer because uh, Aldrich gets absolutely nowhere. Uh, the, the political moment just isn't right. Uh, people don't want to hear it. Aldrich, being so conservative, uh, is excoriated in the press. And um, uh, he has trouble drawing up a plan. And um, by 1910, this is now uh, fully three years after the panic, uh, Aldrich decides to take um, desperate measures. And um, this is the the anecdote that, that you asked about. And, and when I talk about this, I, I always feel that people are going to accuse me of, uh, of sort of leasing the story out to a Hollywood uh, scriptwriter. But um, Aldrich uh, calls Warburg up and two other uh, bankers from the most prominent banks in New York, um, one from the Citibank and one from Morgan's. And um, he asked them to meet him at his private rail car uh, just across the river here in Jersey City. Um, 
he, he asks them not to tell um, anyone uh, where they're going, uh, none of their uh, colleagues in their financial institutions, none of their family members. They could be gone for a week or two. Uh, he doesn't even specify uh, where they're going. Um, but he says that um, their cover is going to be that they're going to go on a, a duck hunting party. Um, uh, so Warburg shows up with this um, long um, shotgun and cartridges. Um, there was never a less um, convincing thespian, I think, in, in history. He looked nothing like uh, a hunter. Um, but they get on this uh, train car. Um, there are six of them uh, in total. And it becomes clear that um, Aldridge's idea, and, and, and by the way, they're going, the train is, is hitched to a southbound train. They're going to South Georgia, where they're going to get um, a launch to a place called Jekyll Island, where there is um, a hunting lodge and a private club at which uh, J.P. Morgan is a member. And Morgan had, um, this is in the winter, uh, cleared out the club. So there'll be no one there but staff. The staff doesn't even know the identities of the people going. So no one on Wall Street knows that uh, the, essentially the top three bankers on Wall Street are going down there, the most powerful senator in the United States, an assistant a treasury secretary in the United States is there. The treasury secretary himself doesn't know, nor does uh, uh, President Taft. And the mission over that uh, week is for them to draw up a plan for central bank. And uh, over the next week, uh, and they're fed sumptuously by uh, the staff. Uh, they, they use only first names, so Aldrich becomes Mr. Nelson, Warburg becomes Mr. Paul, and so on. So even the staff doesn't know their identities. Uh, so they're fed these lavish meals. Uh, they work all day and, and all night. And uh, when they're finished, they have um, something very close to a blueprint, uh, a first rough draft of the Federal Reserve Act. So <clears throat> the whole idea of a centralized authority um, is sort of anathema to big parts of America. Kind of the argument that you're hearing in these presidential debates. I mean, there were a lot of isolationists, uh, people who didn't want to take, didn't want to uh, replicate Europe, didn't want to replicate a European institution. So how did this thing get passed finally? Well, with great uh, difficulty, um, and, and I'm glad you brought that out. And, and this meeting that I referred to was in 1910, and of course, the act wasn't passed until yet three years later after that. So three years after the meeting in, in 1913, and fully um, six years after the panic of 1907, and 11 years after Warburg came to this country and uh, began his lobbying. And the problem was exactly what you alluded to, this antipathy towards centralization, the fear of big government organizations, the fear of big um, financial uh, organizations in particular, uh, today would, would um, call them Tea Party Republicans, people who were opposed to the central government and strong centralized institutions. Back then, uh, they were basically populist Democrats, also some populist Republicans. Uh, Charles Lindbergh uh, was one of the foremost uh, opponents of the Federal Reserve uh, legislation. He was the father of uh, the aviator. He was also an isolationist. But it's interesting to note that, that he represented the district later, represented by Michelle Bachman. So the, 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 you know, not a coincidence, the, the party labels changed, but the geographies didn't. The closer, the further you got from New York, the further you got from the Eastern Seaboard, the more terrifying this idea of a big central bank and a big uh, government bank got. And in, um, it really took a realignment of the parties, which happened um, in another year perhaps resident of our own, because it was a year with a, a very vigorous uh, three-party presidential election. Uh, President Taft, the Republican, 
uh, Woodrow Wilson running as a Democrat, and of course former uh, President Roosevelt running probably to the left of either of those candidates from the so-called uh, bull moose or, or progressive uh, ticket. Um, Wilson is elected uh, in a sweep, bringing in the, the Democrats. The Democrats, uh, remember, then are the party of small government, a laissez-faire. They're still the, the, the Andrew Jackson, Thomas Jefferson Democrats. And alluding to your point about uh, people's fear of centralization, uh, this puts the, the Democratic victory puts Carter Glass, um, the, the chairman of the House Banking Committee, makes him the most powerful uh, legislator on financial matters now in the Congress. Um, but he's relatively young. He's you? relatively young. His 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 perhaps his his greater fame as the author of the Glass Steagall Act is still twenty years in the future. But it's up to Glass to to draw up uh, a banking bill, and because of his uh, tremendous antipathy to centralization, to federalization. Glass was a, a child of the Civil War, um, uh, his son of a, of a Confederate veteran. Uh, he uh, remembered as a boy Reconstruction, federal troops in, in his home city of Lynchburg. Uh, he rewrote the uh, Virginia state constitution to disenfranchise uh, African Americans so that they couldn't vote. Uh, so he and, and for reasons very much related to that, he was very much opposed to federalizing or centralizing anything. He thought, you know, he was all for states' rights and, and would remain that to his dying breath. So when it came to him to redesign the banking system, rather than a centralized system, uh, he suggested uh, 20 reserve banks around the country. So we had 48 states. He, he essentially wanted a reserve bank in every other state. And unlike the Fed we have today, uh, no uh, Federal Reserve System in Washington, no Federal Reserve Board, no tie-in together. Uh, so it was going to be completely, it, it was as if you were drawing up the Articles of Confederation and leaving out the Constitution. And he brings that to um, Woodrow Wilson, the president-elect. They met in Princeton, where Wilson lived. Uh, this is in uh, the period right after Wilson's election. They were going to meet in Wilson's uh, office, governor's office in Trenton, but uh, Wilson was very ill. Uh, uh, so they met in his home in Princeton. Uh, Wilson, who of course also was a Democrat, was a different kind of Democrat. Uh, he was a lifelong a scholar and historian. Uh, he knew all about um, Alexander Hamilton uh, and the first and second banks of the United States. And he was uh, actually quite a believer in uh, that being one of the purposes of the federal government. Uh, moreover, uh, Paul Warburg had through various back channels uh, gotten to Woodrow Wilson. So when uh, Carter Glass presented this very decentralized uh, plan to uh, Wilson, uh, he very diplomatically complimented Glass and said, you're far on the right track. Uh, and then he said, um, but what have you done in regard to centralization? And of course, Carter Glass simply jumped out of his chair. But uh, Wilson said, you know, this needs, needs, a, needs a little something more. It needs a capstone. He said a very small word, a capstone, just like a little cap, a little button or something. But this, <laughs> this capstone grew into uh, what is today this giant um, institution in uh, Georgetown that uh, now headed by uh, Janet Yellen with um, uh, 200 economists and you know, thousands of employees and so on in the Federal Reserve System uh, that we know today. Yeah, but but there were you know the regional banks and the re and the regional banks had presidents and they were on the Open Market Committee and they could vote. So there was some at least lip service or cosmetic uh, decentralization. Very much, and it was really more than, it was good, it's a good point. It was more than lip service and more than cosmetic. Um, it, for one thing, it was a much bigger country then, uh, so the distances were greater. Uh, 
and they wanted um, every uh, individual bank to be within an overnight's train ride of one of the individual reserve banks so that when they needed cash, they could get it. That was a, you know, money didn't travel electronically then. And they also thought that, um, and they believed that uh, each region of the country should be represented. Uh, the national economy was much less national than it is today. Uh, it wasn't uncommon to have uh, one area of the country doing very well and another area to, uh, not to be doing well, to have interest rates uh, being different. So this was really um, very much a compromise. I think um, after the example of the Constitution itself that you know, divided uh, power uh, between the states and the federal government. So in the Federal Reserve Act, um, they reserved uh, supreme power for the Reserve, Federal Reserve Board, but reserved quite a bit of power to these 12 reserve banks. So there are a couple of concepts that are really cent central to the Federal Reserve, and let's talk about them and then try to get into contemporary times. So one of them is independence, that the Federal Reserve must be independent, not subject to presidential or congressional authority. How did that come about? Well, um, it was very devoutly uh, believed. Uh, the, the, you should say that other nations had central banks and by then, and their central banks had arisen organically. So um, say in the case of England, uh, the Bank of England was the bank that, that began making loans to the crown. And because it made loans to the crown, its notes were considered reliable and they began to circulate. And they acquired something of the status of currency. And over time, uh, more through practice than through legislation, it began to take on more of the look and feel of a modern central bank. But even as late as the period we're talking about, the first decade of the 20th century, the Bank of England was not a public. It was still a private bank. And um, that, was, that was the pattern in most of the central banks around the world. Uh, money, the origin of money came from banknotes. Um, you know, the term banknotes, uh, they were good faith promises uh, from banks. When... Um, the Federal Reserve Act was a chance to do it from scratch, uh, as it were, because you know, we were starting from scratch. The idea that the federal government would muck around in this absolutely terrified uh, Wall Street. And so the first, uh, the first plan, uh, the, the plan that Waldrich, uh, that Warburg and Aldrich and the other conspirators down in Georgia uh, drummed up was for a completely uh, private plan. Uh, not surprising, because they were uh, from Wall Street. Uh, so they were gonna, it, was, it was more like a self-regulatory uh, organization. The leaders of this plan would be bankers. The leaders of the organization, the central bank that they drummed up would be bankers. They would be elected by other bankers and so forth. And even Carter Glass, who was a, a very conservative uh, reformer, um, the plan that he suggested to Wilson, uh, it would have uh, seven people on the Federal Reserve Board uh, but three or four of them would also be bankers, uh, selected uh, by bankers. Uh, Woodrow Wilson was a lifetime student of the Constitution ever since his PhD at Hopkins. Um, and um, he had second thoughts about that. Um, uh, there were people on uh, Wilson's left, uh, who, uh, including William Jennings Bryan, uh, who uh, was in his cabinet, uh, and a very powerful Democrat. Uh, and really, Wilson, who really couldn't get anything past the Congress without uh, Bryan's uh, say-so, who were angling for an all-appointed uh, board. That is to say, all presidentially appointed, all public servants. Uh, so Wilson was in, in a bit of a pickle because uh, Bryan actually threatened uh, that if the bill weren't changed to make this an all-public board, get rid of the private bankers, uh, he, Bryan, would resign. 
which really not only would have sabotaged the Federal Reserve Act, it would have sabotaged uh, Wilson's first term. So Wilson called up uh, a trusted advisor whose name you'll all recognize but wasn't yet uh, in the public uh, eye, uh, a Boston lawyer named Louis Brandeis. And um, Brandeis said, um, uh, uh, Brian is absolutely right. These all have to be uh, public servants. You're creating an agency that's going to supervise and oversee the financial system. The financial system is a public trust. And what's more, he said, you can't trust bankers even on an area in which they have expertise because their advice will always be self-interested anyway. Um, so Wilson um, called in class and said, we're, we're going to go uh, with plan B. Uh, we're going to change this bill, and we're not going to have bankers choosing these um, Federal Reserve Board members. Uh, I'm going to pick them all. Glass was absolutely apoplectic uh, for the reason that you, that you suggested. They were afraid of, um, of interference. They were afraid of, of being too close to the political system that uh, the president, seeking popularity and so on, would appoint people who, um, uh, whose decisions would make uh, him popular or him or her popular. But um, Wilson wasn't flinching, and, and uh, that's the origin of how we got uh, uh, public servants to the board. And that was, was really, I should add, if you have to go back to 1913. We didn't have a whole lot of public agencies. We weren't, industry wasn't used to having to do what public, what Washington told it to do. Yeah, it was a leap of enlightenment uh, it, it that really leap, caused them. It was a leap into the 20th century. Yeah. By the time of the New Deal, you know, we had agencies all over the place. But yeah. this was really the beginning of the end of laissez-faire in that sense. Okay, then the second concept is, you know, the way you talk about it, it's to prevent financial calamity. But now the Federal Reserve has two objectives. Um, one is to um, maintain full employment, and the other is to avoid excessive inflation. How did those objectives come into uh, play? Well, they never would have used the term full employment uh, back in 1913. Um, they, they were very familiar with the term stable currency. Um, I, I think they thought of the Federal Reserve uh, Board that they were creating as an agency that would keep a stable flow of credit. Um, I think they had smaller aspirations uh, for it. They didn't have in mind uh, uh, an agency that would micromanage each tick up or down. But when you talk about um, stabilizing the flow of credit, after all, that has a lot to do with how the economy is going to function. And although there were um, Wall Streeters and conservatives who were very worried that this new agency, which after all was going to circulate a new form of money, would be inflationary, there were people on the opposite end who said, um, you are, um, this agency is going to be too restrictive. We, the rules that you're drawing up for the Fed are too restrictive. We want um, looser controls so that the Fed will be able to create uh, more money, farmers and so on. So although they wouldn't have used the term full employment or managing the economy or anything like that, the tension was already there. The tension that this was an agency that would both have to um, avert inflation and also avert depression. Because don't forget, we had not that long in the past before 1913, the US had had 30 years running of deflation from 1866 to 1896. So, so um, you know, they knew all about depression back then. Right, um, but they did establish targets, I mean, uh, for these things. The, the, the targets, that was, you know, they had no computers, they had no cell yeah. phones, they had no targets. Right. That, was, um, that, that would come later, yeah. yeah. Well, they didn't, I mean, uh, I talked to, to some members of the Federal Reserve Board, and, uh, and they described life there as pretty boring. They're just a bunch of 
uh, PhDs sitting in their little cubicles or offices, uh, not talking to each other. Um, okay, so now we're going to get into contemporary times. And, um, and Milton Friedman uh, and Anna Schwartz in their writings have said that inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon. And in, 19, in 2008, the balance sheet of the Federal Reserve founded, as you said, in 1913, over 95 years, it built a balance sheet of $1 trillion. Today, the balance sheet is $4.5 trillion. So in a period of six years, now eight years, um, that went up um, uh, $3.5 trillion. Uh, it took them 95 years to get to one. It only took them four years, really. You wonder to, where we'll be four years from now. Right. Yeah. And, um, and, and everybody wants them to pay back, you know, pay, to, to start selling those bonds that they bought to create that money. And it's my view that that money, the, the increase in, in money from one to four and a half, that 75% of it went into financial assets keeping interest rates low and uh, pushing uh, equity prices higher. So the, the people in the room probably all benefited from it in some way, um, but I don't know that in the long-term health of the United States was benefited by the rapid expansion of the money supply. I do know that as a result of what Geithner, Bernanke, and Paulson did in 2008, they prevented a meltdown of the banking system. But I wonder if they didn't pay too high a price. What's your view? Well, my view is the only test we have, we have two tests. One is the future, and we're not there yet. I don't know uh, how this period will look in retrospect. So the only test we have now is how other societies who went through similar uh, very rough periods in 2008 and 2009 fared. Uh, overwhelmingly, the United States Federal Reserve was the most aggressive at what's a company known as QE2, so this uh, aggressive program of buying financial assets, essentially long-term treasury bonds, some other things there too, but basically long-term securities issued by the United States government and flooding um, the institutions that formerly had held these uh, bonds, basically banks, with cash. Uh, the U.S., the Fed went at it uh, further and faster and harder than the Bank of England, uh, than the Bank of Japan, uh, uh, and then the ECB. And I have to say that the U.S. has done better. Our recovery has uh, started earlier. Uh, it's been, um, uh, it's moved further. It's been the most solid. So um, I have to give uh, uh, Bernanke and uh, now Yellen, uh, you know, at least an A minus until events were otherwise. And in fact, the, the, the other central banks that didn't go that route uh, all in turn finally came around and began to uh, mimic us, including, of course, uh, uh, the Bank of China today, which is in its own pickle. So, um, you know, the, 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 the theory is great that it's, it's creating too much, uh, it's doing too much for, uh, you know, people with financial assets and so on, but the old saying, uh, there are no atheists in foxholes, and I'm not sure there, there should be a financial purists in foxholes. Uh, Bernanke had to deal uh, first not with the problem that he might create, he had to deal with the problem he had right then. We had 10.5% uh, uh, unemployment in this country. Uh, that was a whole lot of unemployment. Uh, and I, he did not have the luxury of thinking about uh, what problems down the road 
might the solution lead to? Uh, he had to move and move fast. I give him full credit. I do too, uh, but I, I don't focus on the unemployment issue. I really focus on the fact that the banks, fact that the banks would have melted down. Okay, so now Bernanke has passed the baton to Janet Yellen. And everybody at the beginning of 2015 thought enough is enough already, uh, let's start raising rates. And she hemmed and awed all through the year um, and finally did it in December when the economy was starting to get into trouble. So she raised the rates in December and then ludicrously, uh, I don't know where she was motivated to do this, she said she was going to uh, raise rates four times in 2016 and get to 1.35% uh, within early 17. I mean, I, I think that that's very unlikely to happen, and I also think it would probably not be a good thing. What do you think? Well, I think we probably haven't seen the last increase uh, between now and the end of the year. Uh, I, I uh, wouldn't venture a guess to how many there'd be. I think she's gotten herself into a slightly difficult position because um, we're obviously going into an election season, and um, very quickly, if not already, every move she makes or uh, doesn't make is going to be interpreted through the lens of, Will this help the incumbent party? Will it help the, the party out of power and so on? It just gets uh, harder to do it um, when you're in the midst of an election. Um, I think the U.S. economy, though, you know, I'm going to sound like Herbert Hoover, though, is fundamentally sound. And I think, I think, I think there are going to be more increases. I don't think she stopped. So, so. Okay, now there are some people running for political office today who would don't like... Don't say. <laughs> Um, I'm sure all of the, this audience is enthusiastic about, about every the one candidates of them. Yes. They're, that they're going to be uh, able to vote for in November. Um, but um, th th there are still there are people out there who quite vigorously and convincingly argue that the Federal Reserve should be closed down. What are they thinking? Well, I think. Um they're thinking along ideological grounds, uh, not uh, pragmatic grounds. Um, the reserves of the country have to be placed uh, somewhere. Uh, would they want uh, uh, J.P. Morgan Bank to be the central bank of the country? Uh, would they want uh, uh, each bank to be issuing its own notes again? Would they want the total issuance to be regulated by the amount of metal that's extracted, uh, some gold or some high-tech wizard's Bitcoin, which is, you know, bounce all over from $1,500 a bit to $200 and so on. Um, I, I'd like to think that even they don't really believe that they want um, to shut down the Fed, although the Congress now is, is you know, full of bills to either end the Fed or radically revise it and everything. Right, and yeah. and um, uh, there are also bills from the left that would uh, prevent uh, the Fed uh, from doing um, anything like what it did the last time. And you, I think, correctly saluted Bernanke and, and by implication, Paulson for these rescue measures, which, which kept the banks from collapsing. You know, there's an old saying on, on Wall Street, there's no such thing as a bad option. You don't want to take options off the table. And what the Congress is in the process of doing is taking the option off the table so the next time we have a crisis, um, uh, public servants will say to themselves, gee, I wish we could do what they did in 2008, but they basically closed the barn door behind them and said never again. I think that's a terrible idea. Okay, I know we're, the audience has questions. I have two more that I think are important that I'm going to encroach a little bit on their time. One is, how do you feel about going back to the gold standard? I, I think uh, Keynes uh, said it, John Major Keynes said it, it's a barbarous a relic uh, to, um, to think that um, the amount of currency in circulation could somehow be modulated by the amount of um, 
you know, some uh, mineral extracted from the ground. It's, um, it made a nice theory. To some, it's a religion. Um, but uh, it's not science, and it's not economics. And he made that... He, he made that argument in the 30s and 40s, and it took us uh, until the 1970s and took Richard Nixon, of all people, uh, to end it, right? So it took a long time to sink in. So there's another idea floating out there that hasn't sunk in yet, and that is too big to fail. Do you think the banks, uh, the major money center banks in uh, New York are too big to fail? Uh, well, I assume by too big to fail, you mean they're so big that they would be they would be bailed out uh, yeah. again. I, I think they probably are. I don't I don't think that um, that the federal government would ever allow um, uh, Morgan or City uh, to fail. Um, I would though I would be hesitant though, uh, as I said, to draw um, uh, say to write a law that would prevent that from happening again. I, I I don't think that what you want to do is when there's a say a dramatic fire and uh, half of the town burns down. The fire engines come, uh, they put out the fire. Um, the first thing that I would do is not to abolish the fire department. Uh, the, 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 the problem that we went through in, in 2008, and it was a problem of small banks every bit as, uh, as much as large banks, was that banks were um, very foolishly lending to people with all kinds of misbegotten uh, guidelines. And, and, and I should say, on the other hand, and, and people were, were very foolishly borrowing. It was a problem, I don't think, of bank size. It was a problem of, of bank regulation. And that's what we need to fix. OK, so there are microphones on either side, I think. And the idea is to line up in back of the microphones and ask a question, not, not make a speech. <laughs> but um, ask, you know, formulate your, your idea into a question uh, for Roger. And if you have one for me, I'll do my best. So let's start over there. Thank you for a wonderful talk, both of you. My question deals with the present day, uh, 300 members of the House of Representatives and 50 senators advocated um, auditing the Fed. Is this a tie over to what you said uh, uh, where it's a, a philosophic difference rather than a practical difference? Well, it's just a poor a choice of words, I think. The Fed is audited by the GAO, I think, twice a year. Everybody knows what's on the Fed's books. Uh, Byron just alluded to the four and a half uh, trillion. He didn't, he didn't break into their vaults to find that out. It's, it's, <laughs> I don't think it's public information. The audit the Fed bill that Paul um, uh, suggested is a bill to basically put the... Um, daily decisions of the Fed, the monetary decisions, under day-to-day, hour-by-hour scrutiny of the Congress. So the question is, do you want elected representatives making these decisions or supervising in that close and intimate way? So they go back to the districts and say, you know, I promise I'm going to lower the Fed funds rate to you know, such and such. I'm going to give you the money you want. And I mean, you know, we talk about independence not only from uh, the administration, which is very important, but also administration uh, independence from the Congress, so I, I don't think that's a very good idea. Thank you. Okay, over here. Uh, my question is, uh, could you tell us a little bit about uh, what the the Fed did or didn't do during the Great Depression? What impact did it have? Yeah, it was mostly didn't. Uh, it's a good question. And the um, the reason, I mean, there were a few reasons, but I think the, um, the biggest one was that tension we talked about uh, earlier between uh, a, a central Federal Reserve and the banks around the periphery of the hub, the individual reserve banks, it was never really um, decided in the Federal Reserve Act where the power would lie. Would it be with Washington 
Would it be with the Bank of Minneapolis, the Bank of Kansas City? Would it be with the most powerful reserve bank, which was clearly the, the Reserve Bank in New York? Would it be with the Treasury Secretary, who was automatically a member? And when the, reset, when the Depression came around, there were big disagreements between the individual banks. There were disagreements between um, the banks, in some cases, and the uh, board in Washington. In some cases, uh, one district wanted to ease rates, another wanted to, uh, 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 to go the other direction. And there just was no one uh, a part of the agency speaking with very uh, clear hand and clear leadership, as obviously Ben Bernanke was clearly in, in control in 2008. Um, but they also, in the 30s, made some serious mistakes. They did. They did. Uh, Byron's absolutely right. They, you know, we, we had a very strong recovery in the first uh, four years of the New Deal. And at that point, um, uh, they and um, the administration thought we were coming out of it. Uh, we uh, went back to a balanced budget on the fiscal side and on the monetary side. Uh, they tightened interest rates again, as Byron just alluded to, and we went right back into it. And, and, and that was one of the reasons, a very big reason, why Ben Bernanke was uh, so cautious about um, not turning off the monetary spigot in, in our recovery. He was just wanted to uh, prime the pump, prime the pump, prime the pump, and not relive the example of 1938 again. Thank you. Not according to Paul Krugman. He, he didn't. Paul, Paul didn't think he did enough. Okay, back here. Hi, Roger. Um, thank you for doing this talk. As you think about the things that you think about, uh, I'm wondering if you have a point of view on the whispers and shouts around the world about moving towards a cashless society and what that might um, mean for our culture, both in a historical context and for the financial system more generally. I'm going to turn that to Byron in a sec, but I'll, I'll just say with, with um, uh, what I would say is Whatever form money takes, whether it's um, a green uh, piece of paper in your wallet, or it's a piece of plastic, as you know, in, in many cases it is now, or uh, a check really is is is, is a is a form of cashlessness, or whether it's um, digitalization on your phone, your smartphone, or something like that. Um, there's going to be some central ledger that shows how much you have, and. Um, and there are going to be people who are going to need more than they have, and they're going to go borrow. And they're going to borrow from, from institutions larger than themselves that will look something like banks. And those banks are going to have uh, themselves uh, a need to put their excess reserves, even if they're in digital form. And there are going to be times when they're going to need themselves surplus reserves, even if they're in digital form. And, uh, and so I think the need for some bank to banks, a Federal Reserve, is going to be with us for quite some time, even even in the era of cashlessness, uh, Byron? Yeah, I think, you know, the, uh, this is a, we, we have a volatile, not only do we have a volatile stock market, we have a volatile economy. And there are times when the economy is going to need cash. And the Federal Reserve is the institution that can produce that. I mean, the Treasury prints it. But um, the, I, I think you need a Federal Reserve that can expand the money supply in times of need and can prevent the economy from going into a deep recession. If you look at where we are now, ordinarily in a normal business cycle, we have two tools to keep us out of trouble. Uh, one tool is fiscal policy, the other is monetary policy. So if the economy were to go into a swoon, you could use these two tools. They're doing that in Japan as we speak. But in the United States, uh, it's doubtful that we have any tools right now. 
in a Republican Congress, very hard to get any fiscal spending uh, passed through. And with interest rates a quarter of 1%, you can't lower them much and do much good. So we better hope that the recovery that we're in is sustainable because I think we've run, the, I look in the toolbox, it looks pretty empty to me. Over here. Hi. As uh, the largest and um, one of the most leveraged <clears throat> financial institutions in history, um, if the Fed's positions went against them, uh, is there any thought to how they would deal with uh, insolvency? So they're holding uh, $4 trillion in uh, assets, uh, uh, which are basically bonds. Uh, those bonds are going to be worth something. It's hard for me to see how they would uh, go to zero. Um, you know, the dollar bills that we hold are, of course, liabilities of the Fed. And we used to be able to go to the Fed and uh, individual reserve banks and demand gold for those, uh, li uh, for those uh, liabilities. They still are considered liabilities. So they still show up on the liability side of the ledger. But things are different now, because if you go to the reserve window downtown of the Federal Reserve Bank in New York and present this liability, a $1 bill, they will honor it. But they'll honor it by giving you back another $1 bill. <laughs> so it's as long as they have the ability to do that trade, you know, they're, they're in pretty good shape. They're very different from other institutions. It's a good so, trick. Yeah, it's really only Tuesday, and I hate to ruin your weekend. But I encourage you to take a look at the structure of that four and a half trillion dollars. Uh, shortly before Roger began working on that book, um, there, the entire balance sheet, the one trillion dollars that I was talking about in 2008, the one trillion dollars was all in U.S. Treasury securities. Now it's in all kinds of junk. I mean, it's, it holds mortgages, it holds um, uh, municipal securities. It has a variety of assets other than treasury. So the quality of the balance sheet has deteriorated as it has grown. Um, the goal of the balance sheet was to get the money in circulation to prevent a catastrophe in the US economy. And they achieved that. But when you look at the balance sheet, you don't have a warm feeling. Or maybe you do, Roger. You, you know, you alluded to before, why aren't they selling it off? And, yeah. and uh, I'm surprised at that. If I wanted to raise interest rates and I was sitting on $4.5 trillion in bonds, and, and uh, for people who aren't financial specialists here, you know, if, if you buy bonds, uh, interest rates go down. If you sell bonds, they go up. If they started selling some of uh, four, those $4.5 trillion in assets, I'm pretty certain that interest rates would go up. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I wouldn't be quite so timid as I think Janet Yellen has been. I, I think it's time to start um, uh, trimming down that balance sheet. I think it probably is time, but I don't think she'll do it um, because I think uh, she realizes the risks involved. And she is very risk averse. She's very risk averse. Okay. Would we, I know it's 7.30, but this is uh, or getting into it. There's another question over here. Question about that empty toolbox. Okay. And I'm going to persist in asking about the barbarous relic. If the Federal Reserve tries to sell a few trillion dollars worth of those government securities, isn't it just possible that we will regret that that barbarous relic is not still in the toolbox? Uh, I, I don't think, you know, Barbara Sralik is referring to gold. Um, you know, in the 1920s, uh, well, I should go back, in the um, 
1860s, 70s, and 80s, we had uh, 30 years of sustained deflation. Every year, uh, prices went down because you couldn't uh, circulate uh, money that wasn't backed by gold. And we had an economy that was basically in that 30 years went from being essentially an agricultural economy and very small businesses to um, railroads across the country, mines, steel mills, and everything. But the monetary system was stuck in that barbarous age. It was tied to the amount of gold. We only came out of it. We were lucky to come out of it because there were big gold discoveries in the Klondike and in South Africa and so on and other places. But um, the idea that um, this um, metal that the ancients worshipped uh, should regulate uh, the circulation, I think, um, you know, is almost uh, less than barbarous. There's, uh, this country is a hostage to all sorts of uh, what I call originalism. You know, there are these uh, constitutional scholars who think that um, any comma that wasn't uh, foreseen by the founding fathers should preclude any sort of legislation today. Um, we don't live in the same world uh, as in 1776. We don't live in the same political world we don't live in the same world socially. We don't live in the same world um, uh, financially. So I bid a happy goodbye to the barbarous relic. Roger Lowenstein, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Byron Ween, you did a great job tonight for us. Thank you. Good evening, everyone. I'm Dale Gregory, Vice President for Public Programs. We're thrilled always to have you with us and filling our auditorium. Please stay for the book signing. Roger Lowenstein will be signing America's Bank, the epic struggle to create the Federal Reserve on our 77th Street side of the building. And the books are for purchase in our museum store on the central, on the, excuse me, the opposite, the 77th Street side, and he will be signing on Central Park West side. Thank you all, and yes, Byron. Yeah, I just want to say one thing. Obviously, I've read the book, and don't, don't think this is a dry economics book like the kind we all had to read in college. The, the, human, the personalities that are involved here, their interaction, the context, of the United States at the turn of the century makes it a very exciting read. So those of you who are on the fence about buying it, get out there and get your credit cards. <laughs> <laughs>